It's Saturday, March the 19th, and this is your morning briefing from The Economist. Coming up, catch up, rescue underway in Mariupol, and Biden and she speak. First, the week in brief. Some 130 people have been rescued from a theatre in Mariupol, according to a Ukrainian official. An estimated 1,300 people are still trapped in the building, which was bombed by Russian forces, city authorities said. Meanwhile, Russian missiles hit a maintenance plant by the airport in Lviv, a city in the west that has so far not seen much fighting and has become a sanctuary for refugees. Xi Jinping, China's president, told Joe Biden, his American counterpart, that, quote, the Ukraine crisis is not something we want to see, according to Chinese state media. Mr Xi called for dialogue and criticised the West's sweeping sanctions against Russia. Mr Biden warned of the, quote, implications and consequences if China provides material support to Russia in its war. The two leaders spoke by phone for nearly two hours. At his first public appearance since the start of the war, Vladimir Putin told tens of thousands of cheering people that Russians, quote, have not had such unity for a long time. Russia, he said, would, quote, realise all the plans we have set for ourselves. The rally at a football stadium in Moscow was reportedly filled with students and state employees, at least some of whom were made to attend. Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania expelled a total of 20 Russian diplomats. Britain's communications regulator revoked the licence of RT, Russia's state-funded broadcaster, over concerns that its Ukraine coverage is biased. Ofcom noted the broadcaster's close links to a government which has, quote, recently invaded a neighbouring sovereign country and is strangling the country's free press. An official from the World Food Programme said food supply chains in Ukraine were, quote, falling apart because of insecurity caused by the war and the reluctance of drivers to enter the country. Food and war supplies in cities encircled by Russian troops, such as Mariupol, are running out. The agency also warned of, quote, collateral hunger in other parts of the world. Mr Putin reportedly told Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, what his demands would be for a ceasefire with Ukraine. Some seem straightforward, such as a promise that Ukraine will not join NATO something President Vladimir Zelensky has already conceded, and a disagreement of disarmament. Others, including changes to the status of Crimea and the Donbar region, look less surmountable. Other news. German lawmakers voted to remove most COVID-19 restrictions despite rising infections. Nearly 300,000 cases were reported in the past 24 hours. Argentina's Senate approved a $45 billion debt deal with the International Monetary Fund, ensuring the government avoids a default. 
the Bank of England raised interest rates to 0.75%, an increase of 0.25 percentage points in a bid to tame rampant inflation. And word of the week. Dish dasher. A dress-like shirt flowing down to the ankle that Amanis are required to wear. Oman Sultan wants to maintain sartorial standards. And now, here's today's agenda. The risk of nuclear escalation. The invasion of Ukraine has moved the world past the threshold at which nuclear conflict becomes conceivable. Only one combatant, Russia, has nuclear weapons, as its president Vladimir Putin has been keen to emphasise. In one scenario, Russia could let off a nuke to turn the tide of defeat. It might deploy a small one, known as a non-strategic nuclear weapon. These are not the city-destroying kind, but are still equivalent to letting off hundreds of thousands of tonnes of high explosive. Or Russia could provoke NATO by attacking arms depots in its member states, triggering the alliance's mutual defence clause. For Russia to escalate the war in a way which brings in NATO would invite decisive defeat. To plan on staving off that defeat by nuclear means would risk massive retaliation. Whatever chain of events might bring it about, the deliberate irradiation of even a sliver of Ukraine would be shocking and devastating. Architecture's first black Pritzker winner. Diabedo Francis Kerry, an architect from Burkina Faso, this week became the first black person to win the Pritzker Prize, a prestigious award known as the Nobel of Architecture. Mr Kerry, who lives and works in Berlin, is a hero in Gando, the small village where he was born, for a series of climate-friendly school buildings and libraries he designed to cope with searing temperatures and water shortages. Many architects win the Pritzker towards the end of their careers. The 56-year-old Mr Kerry is at the height of his. In 2017, he became the first African architect to design the temporary summer pavilion at the Serpentine Gallery in London. His biggest ongoing project is the National Assembly Building of Benin in Portanova. Alas, a similar project for his own country's capital, Ouagadougou, which was commissioned in 2015, has been on hold since January when the president was overthrown in a military coup. We work on the small screen. The hubris and chicanery of Silicon Valley is an irresistible subject for television drama makers. Recent series have looked at Uber, a ride-hailing firm, and Theranos, a fraudulent blood-testing startup. Now WeWork has joined the list. We Crashed, which premiered on Apple TV Plus on Friday, chronicles the rise and fall of a workspace provider that billed itself as a revolutionary tech firm. The startup's fate, the show suggests, 
had much to do with a tumultuous relationship between its co-founder, Adam Newman, and his wife, Rebecca. Played by Jared Leto and Anne Hathaway, they reinforce each other's grandiose visions, even as resentments between them fester. In the end, WeWork had to abort its first flotation attempt in 2019. Investors bulked at its private valuation of $47 billion. Like its recent predecessors, We Crashed skewers the delusion and narcissism of many a tech entrepreneur. The genre is something akin to Greek tragedy. A protagonist grossly overestimates his abilities. His hubris is punished. Order is restored. The art of menswear. Men can be glamorous too. That is the message of an exhibition at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London opening on Saturday. Fashioning Masculinities celebrates the ways in which men's clothes can be every bit as decadent, imaginative and fun as women's. The show presents classic sculptures, Renaissance paintings, a video of a dance choreographed by Matthew Bourne, who replaced some ballerinas in Swan Lake with men, and works by artists including David Hockney, alongside the fashion. They complement outfits by designers including Raph Simmons and Jean-Paul Gaultier. Sophonisba Anguissola's portrait from around 1560 of Prince Alessandro Farnese, the son of the Duke of Parma, offers a historical precedent. Dressed in an ermine-lined cloak, embellished with pearls, the sumptuously outfitted teenage royal looks like he could have been dressed by Harris Reed. The 25-year-old designer has recently become famous for his romantic, gender-fluid gowns. Harry Styles, a pop star, wore one in vogue. Weekend Profile Yuri Kovalchuk, Vladimir Putin's conciliary. If there is one man Vladimir Putin has to listen to, it is his Chinese counterpart, Xi Jinping. But if there is one man Russia's president chooses to listen to, it is Yuri Kovalchuk. America's Treasury Department calls him the, quote, personal banker for senior officials of the Russian Federation. Others describe him as Mr Putin's banker. Kremlin watchers, such as the writer Mikhail Zygar, rank him as, quote, the de facto second man in Russia, the most influential among the president's entourage. During Mr Putin's notoriously strict self-isolation, Mr Kovalchuk accompanied the president to his luxurious mansion, built on land partly owned by one of Mr Kovalchuk's companies in northwestern Russia. They may well have plotted the invasion of Ukraine together. Both men are part of the Azero Group, a clique of friends who run Russia. When he returned to St Petersburg after his KGB service at the end of the Cold War, Mr Putin built a country house a couple of hours' drive north of the city. Seven friends, all businessmen, built dachas nearby. They turned their brotherhood into a gated community called Ozero, Lake in Russia. The group has profited immensely from Mr Putin's premiership. Mr Kovalchuk became the chairman 
and largest shareholder of Rossiya Bank. Forbes magazine estimates his fortune at $1.5 billion. He also founded National Media Group, a holding company for Kremlin-friendly outlets. Mr Kovalchuk frequently hosts Mr Putin at his ski resort in Agora, not far from their Ozero Dachas. In 2013, Mr Putin's daughter, Katerina, was married there to the son of another Ozero groupie, Nikolai Shamalov, another shareholder at Rossiya Bank. Since the Russian annexation of Crimea in 2014, Mr Kovalchuk has been hit by sanctions several times, denting his fortune. But he has also profited from Mr Putin's foreign adventurism. He bought two Crimean wineries, and Razia was the first Russian bank to expand into Crimea after its annexation. As the squeeze on Russia intensifies, the importance of such ultra-loyalists will only grow. If Mr Putin stumbles, his conciliary will be at the centre of the action. Finally, here's the quote of the day from Arthur C. Clarke, who died on this day in 2008. The only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way past them into the impossible. That's it from The Economist Morning Briefing, available every weekday and on Saturdays. You can hear interviews and analysis from our journalists, including our current affairs podcast, The Intelligence, by searching for The Economist on your podcast app or asking your smart speaker to play the latest Economist podcast. And as a subscriber, you have access to each week's full edition in audio. Just download The Economist app on your mobile device to start listening.